Welcome, everyone, to the Republic of Football. I'm your host, Shahan J. Raja, the college football insider at Dave Campbell's Texas Football. You can find all our work at texasfootball.com. Follow us on Twitter at DCTF. Like us on Facebook, Dave Campbell's Texas Football. Follow us on Instagram, Dave Campbell's. And we're back. We're back. It's been a couple of weeks since we've talked, and a lot has happened. I'll tell you what, a lot has happened since we last talked. I think maybe uh, two weeks ago. I think we took two weeks off. So, oh boy, where even to start? <laughs> I mean, we have Dana Holgerson heading to the state of Texas. We have the Texas Longhorns, champions of the Sugar Bowl. We have Texas A&M nine-win season. Several of their players going to the NFL. I mean, it's it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Baylor's bowl champions. Oh, TCU, most importantly, Cheez-It Bowl champions. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's been a crazy bowl season. I hope everybody had a fantastic, fantastic Christmas break. I know I did. It's wonderful to spend time with family, and my fiancé came into town. It, it was absolutely fantastic. But we're back. I mean, there's no time to waste. Obviously, for every team in the state of Texas right now, football is done, but there's so much to talk about. Let's get right into it. And look, maybe it's recency bias because it happened yesterday when we're recording, but the Texas Longhorns, oh boy, I don't think I could have seen that coming. I mean, I really did not see that coming. I thought that maybe Texas would put up a fight for maybe two or three quarters, but that's not what happened. Texas came out against Georgia, number five Georgia, who had a chance to prove that they deserved to be in the college football playoff. And they absolutely take it to them. The final score is 28 to 21, but that does not do justice to just how dominant Texas was in this football game. The Longhorns led 28 to seven in the fourth quarter after Sam Ellinger gets in on a half yard touchdown run. Just such a resilient play. I I mean, (laughs) Look, I haven't always been the biggest Sam Ellinger fan in the world. I, th- I think he has been inconsistent. But this year, he's taken a huge step forward. And, I mean, when you watch that game, the only thing you can think, really, is that that looks like Tim Tebow. That, that's what Sam Ellinger looks like running the ball right now. And the final numbers don't necessarily look super impressive. 21 carries for 64 yards, 3 yards per carry. But gets into the end zone three times, including... On a fourth down play, like I mentioned, to make it 28-7. to seven. Uh, Also throws for 169 yards on 27 pass attempts. I mean, Sam Ellinger was the story of this game. And there's no way around it. He was the story of this game. Obviously, there are several other players who had big games. Little Jordan Humphrey, Colin Johnson. Trey Watson actually ends up leading the team in rushing. And on top of that, I mean, look, I, I'm also bearing the lead a little bit too. Defensively, Texas just dominated the Georgia Bulldogs. Georgia came into the game as one of the best rushing teams in all of college football, and they're held to only 72 yards on 30 carries. 2.4 yards per carry for the Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, and that was really all all she wrote. That That's what it came down to. I mean, Texas was able to dominate the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, and they were able to get to Jake Fromm just enough that, uh, that he was off all day. I mean... His final numbers are okay, 224 yards, three touchdowns, an interception, but a lot of that production came in garbage time, too. A lot of it was after the game was all but over. Texas took a 20-7 to lead at the half of this game, and that was really the ball game. I mean, Georgia could not get back into this game. What a performance by Texas. I mean, obviously, this is only year two under Tom Herman, but it's just to have this kind of complete team performance 
in your first major bowl game since 2009, the 2009 season when they played in the national type, uh, title game. Uh, I mean, again, I don't think that anybody could have seen this coming like this. And, you know, there's there's going to be all this talk about how Georgia didn't really care about this game and, oh, Texas wanted it so much more than Georgia. But the reality is Texas went into the Sugar Bowl. Georgia's only their second New Year's Day game, including uh, the Rose Bowl last year, their second major bowl game since 2007. So this is not a program that has a whole lot of rings to spare, to be clear. Texas goes in this game and absolutely pounds them. And again, if, if we want to mention too, in New Orleans, in SEC territory, it was a tremendously complete performance by Texas. It was a tremendously impressive performance. And look, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of weird to think about because Texas has been, you know, I, I'll say it, they've been overrated by national people for so long. You know, and, and this dates back to really Colt McCoy leaving. I mean, every single year it seems like Texas finds a way to end up in the preseason AP Top 25, and then they find a way to fall all the way out. And let's just go ahead and go back and look at the numbers a little bit, too. The last time that Texas started in one place and finished better off was the 2008 season. They started number 11 that year, had a number one ranking at one point, and finished number four in the final AP Bowl. Other than that, 2009, granted, they started number two, they finished number two. 2010, they start number five, they finish unranked. 2012, start number 15, finish number 19. 2013, start 15th, finish unranked. Then again, last year, started number 23, finish unranked. This year, start number 23, and now Texas is probably going to finish as an AP top 10 team. And not only that, Texas legitimately has a very, very good case to start the next season as a top five team. Now, I don't know if I'd put them that high. It really depends to me on whether Lil Jordan Humphrey and Colin Johnson come back. Uh, And from what it sounds like, it sounds like maybe Humphrey's leaning more towards the NFL. Maybe Colin Johnson's leaning towards coming back. Uh, But if you bring both those guys back, I think Texas has a real legit chance and and a real legit case to be in that top five conversation. Now, there's going to be a lot of good teams next year. I mean, obviously, uh, Alabama's going to be back with Tua. Clemson's going to be elite. Um, you know, obviously, I think Ohio State, depending on what Dwayne Haskins does, is going to be in that conversation. Georgia, legitimately, I mean, they were a, vi- they were a pretty young team this year, all things considered. Uh, Oklahoma, I mean, I know that they're losing Kyler. Marquise Brown just uh, declared for the NFL draft. Cody Ford declared for the NFL draft. They're losing a lot on offense, but uh, I think they'll still be in that conversation. Washington, you know, th- there's a lot of teams. But I think Texas has as good a case as any of them. And and again, let's be clear. I'm not usually the guy who says Texas. Let's let's build the hype. But I mean, Texas hasn't won ten games since the 2009 season. They haven't played for a conference championship since the 2009 season. They haven't won a major bowl game since the 2008 season. This, this is not the same. This isn't you know <laughs> the late years of Mac Brown, 2012, 2011, where Texas maybe has some hype but doesn't necessarily have the players to match. This is a young team. We mentioned Humphrey, who might be leaving. That's a big deal, but they have a lot of guys in reserve. Uh, Colin Johnson, same deal. I do think that he will end up being back, if what we hear holds. Uh, Gary Johnson, that's a tough spot to replace that linebacker. Charles Omenihue, 
also a tough player to replace on the defensive line, but there's just so much talent that's coming of age right now at the University of Texas. It's it's impressive. And for Texas to start off what could be sort of their next era under Tom Herman with a performance like this and just their second season, it means something. It really does mean something. And uh, we'll have to see whether they can keep that momentum continuing through the offseason and up through the 2019 season, but it's a good start. I'll tell you that much. It's a good start. Anyway, we're going to transition. Uh, we're actually going to bring on our interview right now. We've got a great interview. We've got ESPN Sam Khan. He covers basically everywhere around Houston. So Houston A&M does some LSU. Uh, he was at the Sugar Bowl, actually, when Texas played against Georgia. But we're going to talk to him about the University of Houston. Like we mentioned, they just hired Dana Holgerson from West Virginia as their new head coach. He has the inside scoop on that. He's been right on the inside making calls this whole entire time, saw it all coming. So we're going to talk to Sam real quick. And then after that, I'll I'll actually talk a little bit about Dana Holgerson because there's a lot to talk about with this guy. Again, just an American athletic conference school going in, poaching a coach from a Big 12 school. And there's some context, you know, I'll I'll kind of explain that a little bit. But uh, but without further ado, we bring on ESPN Sam Khan. We're joined now by ESPN's Sam Khan. Sam covers basically the whole region of Houston and obviously has been right on the forefront of the, the newest story over at the University of Houston. Apparently, they're set to hire Dana Holgerson as the next head coach. Sam, what's happening over there? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, we're, everybody's waiting. Like, Dana's in Houston. Tillman Fertitta's in Houston. Chris Pesman's in Houston. Everybody's in town. They actually were... From what I understand, this morning we're in a hotel room, and, or this afternoon. So uh, I don't. Uh, we're just waiting for them, everything to be finalized. I think it's mostly, uh, I joke, but I think it's mostly just you know, agent, contract, legal, all that stuff being finalized. But the uh, the announcement should come today, Wednesday, and I imagine he'll be introduced on Thursday at University Houston as the new head coach. So it completes quite a coup. For University Houston, which, of course, uh, about two weeks ago got hammered in record fashion in the Armed Forces Bowl by Army, and now all of a sudden has hired a sitting Power 5 coach away from a good Big 12 program. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and back up a little bit. Obviously, you know, this time last week, Major Applewhite was still the head coach at Houston. It didn't look like necessarily uh, anything was going to change imminently. So what did change? You know, there were there was a little bit of growing sentiment uh, in Houston circles, even before the bowl game, that just a little bit of uncertainty about Major, just because they were going to lose Kendall Browse at coordinator, which they did after the bowl game to Florida State. And so he was going to have to replace two coordinators. The, the end of the season didn't go as well as they had hoped after starting 7-1. They lost four of their last five. I mean, injuries certainly pre- pre- precipitated that. But also, from what I understand, the excitement around the program had dissipated. You know, it was pretty strong two years ago when Major got the job after Tom Herman left because the Cougars were 22-4 and four in that two-year stretch. But from what I'm told, the, the excitement has kind of dissipated. Season tickets were down, and they, there was a lot of apathy. And what I think what the Armed Forces Bowl result did, you, you don't get fired for losing a bowl game, but when you get embarrassed on national TV the way Houston did, which, quite frankly, it was an embarrassment when you lose 70-14, to 14. that, I believe, is borderline fireable. And so I think that's what how we got to the point of 
you know, majors probably on the hot seat, and maybe we're going to think about something that we're not sure to, you know, the fan base, I think, got really upset about what happened. There was no excitement about the program going into next season if Major was going to be the head coach. Recruiting was hasn't been great. And so all those factors add up. I think the punctuation point being that that, that result in the Armed Forces Bowl and the fact that Dana Holgerson was potentially going to be available to them made it all kind of a perfect storm for it to happen. There was obviously talk about it before last week, but uh, how much do you think losing Kendall Bryles as offense coordinator hurt? I mean, obviously they fire uh, defense coordinator Mark D'Onofrio earlier, so you're going into a situation with no coordinators. Uh, how much do you think that impacted things? Yeah, I think I think that that certainly is a factor because he's already this his next offensive coordinator would have been his third. So that's, you know, that that's tough. You know, three years, three coordinators, that's that's tough to do because Brian Johnson was his first one and, and he's no longer there. Uh, and then making, obviously, the coordinator change on defense was necessary because they struggled on that side of the ball. So I think there's no doubt that that played into it. Also, because if you're going to if you're going to fire a coach and the, the, there's co- two coordinators already gone, that's, you know, you don't have to account for you know, new coaches' salaries, you know, you don't have to count for buying those guys out. I mean, they, they already are going to have to pay out, buy out money to uh, to D'Onofrio for firing him, but now they don't have to worry about, you know, the offensive coordinator spot because, you know, Kendall left voluntarily, so uh, he owes them money. But but uh, I think there's no doubt that played a you know, role into it. I think it just – it's a lot – there was so much uncertainty about the program after losing in that fashion, and you have two coordinator hires to make, and you weren't sure – what direction those were going to go, and and I think it just it just made things a little too unsettling for Houston's tastes. So, at what point did it become clear to Houston that Dana Holgerson is legitimately interested in this job? I think it was not terribly long after the uh, after the two respective bowl games, after Houston's bowl game and after West Virginia's bowl game. I, Dana has a relationship, has had a long time relationship with people in Houston. Uh, and particularly Tillman Fertitta, uh, the, the you know the owner of the Houston Rockets, who also is the chairperson of the Board of Regents and is a, a well-known booster, but probably the most deep-pocketed booster that Houston has. Uh, so th- th- that relationship has been there for a long time. You know, they Houston kicked the tires on on Dana two years ago before they hired Major Applewhite. There was certainly some interest there. Uh, Dana chose to stay, got a really nice extension. But, you know, I think Dana reached a natural separation point with West Virginia, and it was probably a good time to restart his clock. You know, he's been there eight years. They just had his best team. A lot of those guys are moving on. Will Greer, David Sills, David Long. So that team next year is probably not going to be a contender for a Big 12 championship, and it probably would take a couple years. So I, I, I think, you know, after, you know, he got it out to a point where I think, you know, it was, you know, that he felt maybe it was time to, you know, he's probably done the best of what he could do there. And Houston obviously was contemplating moving Applewhite. So those kind of things intersected and, and there you go. So with Dana, I mean, again, he signs a five-year or he's set to sign from what we hear a five-year $20 million contract, uh, the biggest ever for a group of five coach. How big a coup is this for Houston, not just, you know, signing their guy, getting their first option, but also poaching a coach away from a Power 5 program? It is. It's huge. It says a lot about what people think of that job. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you 
the, the group of five and, and the American Athletic Conference is, you know, obviously usually play second fiddle on the national stage, you know, to the power five schools and, and programs in the top 25. But Houston is a good job. You can recruit there. The location is, you know, is good for, you know, for that because you're close to, you know, you're right there in the city of Houston, which is a hotbed for recruits. You're not far from Dallas, Fort Worth, and East Texas, which are also hotbeds for recruits. You know, they've made a commitment to facilities. You know, they spend money on an indoor practice facility, which is one of the best in college football, in my opinion. They've got a, you know, a fairly recent, recently built stadium at TDCU, which opened in 2014. They've shown that they're willing to spend on coaching staff. You know, they spent a lot on Tom Herman when, when he was the coach there. They spent, they spent nearly $3 million a year on him and gave him a pretty sizable salary pool. Kendall Bryles was set to make over a million dollars as the offensive coordinator before he left for Florida State. So they, they, they've shown a commitment. They've shown that they do desire to be relevant, desire to win. And, uh, you know, with the location and with Houston, Dana's affiliation, I mean, uh, affinity for the city of Houston, Dana likes the city. Uh, it, it's a huge coup for them. And I think also the one thing that I, that may go a little bit overlooked in this whole equation is Houston, in my opinion, has long been looking for a guy that will stay a while. You know, that, that was, you know, they've had Kim, uh, Art Bryles, they had Kevin Somlin, they had Tom Herman, all those guys left for greener pastures. I don't get the sense that Dana's going to go anywhere anytime soon because Dana's done the power five thing. You know, he had, he, he did all right. He had some success there at West Virginia. I mean, could he leave for a big job? Sure. But I think it'd have to be like a top 15 level job, top 10, top 15 level job. I don't think he would leave for a middle of the pack big 12 job because I think he's at the point in his life where, you know, being happy is, is probably as important as anything. And I think he, he will be happy in Houston because he loves the city and he can, you know, hang out, have fun and coach some ball. And, uh, and they'll probably be pretty good because Houston's well positioned in that conference. So now that they've hired Dana Holgerson, uh, what are expectations both for him and for the program heading forward? Well, I mean, you, you do this to basically compete and put yourself on the level with UCF, you know, and, and to compete for New Year's Six Bowls, to compete for conference championships year in and year out. Uh, you know, next year, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, without delve, diving into the roster, I know they're going to get De'Aaron King back, you know, once he's healthy and rehab, but, I, you know, they're losing at Oliver. You know, they're going to lose some other key pieces as well. I don't know how well positioned they are from a roster standpoint, but the schedule sets up really well for them next year if you want to make a national statement because they've got Washington State on the schedule. They've got Oklahoma on the schedule. UCF is on the schedule. So if you can win some of those games or if you can walk out and win all of them, you can make a, a big-time statement and, and put yourself in a really great position. But that's what this hire is for. You you hire this guy because you want to win and you want, you want to try to sustain something for a while. And I think this program has proven, you know, they proved in 2015 under Herman that you can get to a New Year's Six Bowl and win it. They've proven under Kevin uh, Sumlin that you can, you know, get into the top ten and that you can recruit at a high level. Uh, they showed under Art Bryles that they can win a conference championship, and that was when they were, you know, still trying to rise as a program, but they were able to win one there under him too. So those are things that they are seeking to do consistently. And so that's, I think, with more than anything, when you hire Dana Holgerson, what they're hoping for is consistency, not – going for a New Year's Six Bowl or Conference Championship every few years, but trying to go for one every year. All right, the last question I have to ask is, uh, so what is the feeling like when you see Bebo charging right at you? 
Oh my gosh, that was well. Fortunately, I, he didn't charge right at me, <laughs> but I was right. I was right next to him, and uh, but I saw him charge at other people. And let me tell you, I was legitimately scared that something bad was going to happen. That somebody was going to get maimed. That somebody was going to get badly injured. And fortunately, those handlers got a hold of him really quickly. Uh, it looks like I think uh, you know one of the photographers got scratched on the back, but it didn't look really serious so they avoided disaster Uga was probably the fastest of everybody he heard Bevo coming and he got out of the way in a hurry so he was unharmed he was healthy and happy after after the game and uh, fortunately everybody emerged unscathed I am happy to report that I left the Sugar Bowl without any injuries though I did uh, I was a little bit nervous for a minute here. <laughs> well, if you, if you haven't seen that video, you got to uh, check out Sam, Sam on Twitter, at Escon Jr. Uh, find all of his coverage, ESPN.com. Uh, he was at the Sugar Bowl last night. Uh, great coverage from over there. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Shaya. Thanks again to ESPN Sam Con for joining the program. Always gives us some great information. And, hey, in the amount of time that's taken for us to record that interview to now, Dana Holgerson's hiring is officially official. Holgerson announcing his entrance to the University of Houston in a Twitter video where he's holding a Red Bull and says, let's go win some games. Obviously a reference to uh, his famous line to Will Greer during the Texas game earlier this year when they decided to go for two. And look, in a lot of ways, this is a a coup for the University of Houston. I mean, again, you just look at it on surface value. You know, they sign Dana Holgerson away from West Virginia, from a Power 5 school to go coach in the American Athletic Conference. And granted, you know, there's a lot of reasons why West Virginia fans were a little bit ready to see him go. Uh, You know, that's what happens a lot of the time after eight years. You know, Dana Holgerson's been there since 2011, and he kind of got pushed in the door the first time, too, just because... uh, you know, well, a whole lot of politics that you know you can look up if you don't know a lot about. Just look up Dana Holgerson and, and Bill Stewart. But Holgerson's been pretty successful at West Virginia. You know, I mean, other than a four and eight season in his second year in the Big Twelve, uh, he's won seven games every single year. He's made a bowl game every single one of those years, seven of eight years, including six of seven in the Big Twelve. He's won ten games twice at West Virginia, and West Virginia's only won ten games or more nine times in its history, and three of those came under Rich Rodriguez last decade when they kind of dominated the Big East. So it's not nothing. I mean, this is a guy who's had success at West Virginia consistently. You know, West Virginia isn't a program that necessarily has a lot of intrinsic advantages. You, You know, they haven't won historically at the highest level. Um, you know, recruiting-wise, you don't have much of a recruiting base in the state of West Virginia itself. And, and even if you do, like, you have to compete with Marshall there, too, which I, I know doesn't sound like a whole lot, but when you're in a pretty small state, when you're competing with another uh, team that's consistently been pretty good at the Group of Five level, that's not nothing. And so you have to go to Florida to get recruits. You have to go to the South to get recruits, to North Carolina, to Virginia, uh, to Texas. You have to go all over to find recruits at West Virginia. At Houston, you don't have to do that. You can have an entire team, a good team, a really good team, built up of players that are all from within the city of Houston. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. And I think that that must be a huge advantage. And on top of that, he's going to be in an area in the city of Houston, in the state of Texas, that has athletes that fit what he wants to do. It's a natural fit, in my opinion. And and we saw him have success here. 
you know, at the University of Houston in 2008 and 2009, he was the offensive coordinator under Kevin Sumlin. And under Sumlin, he helped coach Case Keenum to be one of the most productive quarterbacks in the history of college football. So this is a guy who has been here. This is a guy who wanted to get back into the state of Texas. And this is a guy who has won in the state of Texas. Uh, obviously, again, he coached under Mike Leach uh, at Texas Tech. He coached, like we mentioned, under Sumlin at Houston. He coached under Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State. He's very familiar with this region, even though he hasn't coached here in a very long time. Uh, it, it's a natural fit. It, it's, a, it's an absolutely natural fit. And now at the same time, the expectations are going to be high. The expectations are going to be crazy high. Because when you go and you give $20 million to a group of five head coach, you are saying, hey, we want to win. We don't just want to win a little bit. We want to win at the highest level. We want to compete with UCF. We want to be UCF. We want to be Boise State. And there's no reason at all that the University of Houston cannot be either of those programs. You know, the University of Houston has so many advantages. They have big money boosters like Tilmer Fertitta. They have facilities that rival anybody in the country, not just group of five teams. They, they rival anybody. I actually went uh, for the first time to a game earlier this year, and their facilities are great. You know, they're all very central. The branding is fantastic. Uh, it's all right in the middle of campus. You can feel it. And that's why football is so important to the University of Houston. Tom Herman showed just how much football can help take a university to the next level at the University of Houston. And there's no reason that a coach like Dana Holgerson, a guy that is pretty beloved by former players, a guy who's pretty beloved by other coaches and, and by fans alike, for his easygoing atmosphere, for just, you know, his gun, his ability to, to not be gun shy. Like Dana Holgerson's going to be beloved at the University of Houston if he wins. And there's every reason to think he can win, but he's got to go out and do it now. Because, look, we saw the the last uh, couple of coaches. Major Applewhite was fired after an 8-5 and five season. Tony Levine went 8-5, and five, was fired. We kind of joked that, hey, of course Houston wouldn't fire a coach after going 8-5, and five, but they just fired two coaches in the last three for going 8-5. and five. That's not good enough. If you want to be the head coach of the University of Houston, you better be prepared to win at the highest level. I think Dana Holgerson can do it, but it's going to be a tough ask. It's going to be tough. I'm curious to see what happens, but I'll tell you what. Uh, I think we mentioned on Text Football Today, but Joseph Duarte, the fantastic Houston Chronicle beat writer, uh, for the University of Houston said there is absolutely no buzz around the program right now. And that was right. And guess what? The buzz is back. You're going to be c- expected to compete at the highest level right away next year. So Dana Holgerson, looking forward to talking with you, and we'll see what you're made of. But moving on, uh, look, we've talked a lot about Houston, a lot about Texas. I just want to run a little bit through the bowl games uh, and start with Texas A&M. You know, I wrote about this uh, earlier this week for t- on TexasFootball.com. But Texas A&M really made a big statement, in my opinion, with the way that they suffered through the adversity in the second quarter against North Carolina State and really turned it into a blowout. Uh, we've seen this collapse before at Texas A&M. And, and I, you know, maybe that's a little rude, but we've seen it before. We saw it last year. I mean, they, Texas A&M allows a late touchdown to lose to Wake Forest, the team that's worse than North Carolina State. And... NC State was playing for one of the best seasons in program history, whereas, you know, Texas A&M was, is just trying to take a step. So there's every reason to believe that North Carolina State was just as motivated, if not more so, in that game than Texas A&M. 
But the Aggies come out there. They go down 13-7 in the second quarter, look like they're really struggling to move the ball, really struggling to own the line of scrimmage. But then, Travion Williams happens. He goes for over 230 yards, finishes his uh, what could be his final season at Texas A&M. We'll, we'll see. He hasn't declared as yet. With 1,760 yards, which, by the way, is a mile, which is kind of funny to think about. He ran for a mile this season, literally. 1,760 yards. Uh, has an absolutely dominant season. That's the most ever by a Texas A&M running back. He adds his fifth 200-yard game, which is also the most by a Texas A&M running back. His 230-something yards were the most in the Gator Bowl's history, and the Gator Bowl is not a young bowl, just to be clear. Travion Williams has a fantastic performance. Kellen Mond has some big plays. Uh, Tyrell Dodson on the other end, he just declared for the NFL draft, but he finishes his career by also adding a pick six off of future NFL quarterback Ryan Finley on North Carolina State. This was a statement. This was a statement that things are not going to be the same. You know, again, we've seen so many times before, going down 13-7, to losing the line of scrimmage, Texas A&M has collapsed. We, we've seen it multiple times. They, in fact, the Aggies hadn't won a bowl game in three years before this. This was the first bowl game that this year's seniors won at Texas A&M. And you just compile that with everything else, obviously. Uh, you know, I mean, competing with Clemson the way that Texas A&M did. Beating Kentucky the way that they did. Beating LSU, withstanding the longest and highest-scoring college football game of all time to beat LSU for the first time since joining the SEC. Texas A&M has momentum. They have something. They've got something to build on, and now you bring in a top three recruiting class right now, and we'll see whether it finishes top three, but it's going to finish top five. It's one of the best in the country. It's up there with anybody. Texas A&M has some real momentum, and I know that heading into the year, I was curious, Jimbo, how much are you going to care? How much are you going to look at this 10-year, $75 million contract, and, and how much are you going to accept that, hey, I'm going to get my money regardless? And how much are you going to say, hey, I'm going to go win a national title? I'm going to go be the best coach in the history of Texas A&M. And right now, he's doing the latter. Now, it's year one. It's year one. There's a lot of years left on that contract. But on the other hand, it's year one. They're building there. He wants to build something there. I mean, Jimbo Fisher is not somebody who needs expectations from outside to want to be the best that there is. And he's built a national title team before. Now, Obviously, you still have to go through Alabama. You still have to go through Georgia. Uh, You know, the Aggies also play Clemson next year. It's not going to be easy. In fact, Texas A&M's schedule next season is probably as bad as a schedule as there is in college football next year. You know, this year, obviously, they played all of these tough games, too. But now, on top of that, next year, let's look at this. So you play Texas State at home. Texas State with Jake Spavadol, but still not going to compete. Then you go to Clemson, play Lamar, all right. Get Auburn at home, Arkansas. Then you have the bye. And after that, you have Alabama at home, go to Ole Miss, host Mississippi State, have a little bit of an easier week with UTSA. But then the last three weeks of the year, South Carolina at Georgia at LSU. Like, are you kidding me? That's three of the top five teams in the country right now that you have. On the uh, two of them on the road. Again, you get Alabama at home, but I mean, I don't know. Congrats, <laughs> you know. Alabama is obviously a merciless killing machine, and they're about to win another national title. And there's absolutely no reason to think that they're going to be any worse next year. <laughs> so, look, 
the good thing with a schedule like that is you have so many opportunities to make a statement. You have an opportunity to make a statement in week two at Clemson. You have the opportunity to make a statement on October 12th against Alabama. You have an opportunity to make a statement November 23rd at Georgia. You have another opportunity to make a statement November 30th at LSU. And on top of that, there there are other winnable games in between. You can beat Auburn. You can beat Arkansas again. You can win on the road at Ole Miss. You can beat Mississippi State. You can beat South Carolina at Kyle Field. No problem. (laughs) But it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. This was a big year for Texas A&M. And, again, what you have to look at is they haven't won nine games since the 2013 season. They win nine games. They win a bowl game. They have some momentum. They have some consistency. They have some definition at the quarterback position. Something that they haven't had in a couple of years. Jimbo Fisher is building something at Texas A&M. And, you know, we mentioned this at the beginning of the year. We can't look too hard at this season. And we also can't look too hard at next season. Jimbo Fisher wasn't brought here to win year one or year two. He was brought here to win at the highest level in a couple of years, to compete with Alabama in a couple of years, in three or four years. But right now, he's doing it. He's he's proving that you can potentially build something at Texas A&M. And a lot of people see Texas A&M as a school that's potential has not, a school whose potential has not been tapped. You know, there, there's so many resources there. You're in the SEC. You're close to Houston. You have great recruiting grounds. Again, all the money in the world. <laughs> all the money in the world. And you know what? We're going to see. Texas A&M, can you buy a national championship? We'll have to see. There's no reason that Jimbo Fisher can't be the guy to get you there. But the next couple of years are going to be real interesting to look. And we still have another month until National Signing Day, the the final one. So we'll see how Texas A&M finishes it out. But top three class, 9-4 and four record. Things are sitting pretty good in College Station. All right, well, I talked more about those three programs than I expect. So I'm just going to run through a little bit more with uh, with Baylor and TCU. Baylor, uh, they pick up a big win over Vanderbilt in the Texas Bowl, and they look really impressive doing it. Charlie Brewer is a star. <laughs> I, I don't know if Grant McGallier is listening to this, but we talked about this earlier in the year, and he took great issue with me calling Charlie Brewer a star. But I really think that Charlie Brewer is a star, and he proved it in that bowl game. You know, the the Bears were tied 38-38 late in that game with only, I think, three and a half minutes left. And they needed a play. And and Brewer has a couple of short passes and then throws a 52-yard pass to Marcus Jones, the former walk-on wide receiver. And Brewer finishes the game 384 passing yards, 109 rushing yards. They use him in both the pass and the run game extensively. Three total touchdowns, just shy of 500 yards. He actually reached 500 yards and then... Uh, in the last couple plays of the game, <laughs> ended up you know taking knees, uh, rushing for losses. So it, he didn't end up having a 500-yard game, but he pretty much had a 500-yard game. Um, and again, you know we we'll talk about it with Ellinger all offseason, but Baylor has two more years of this kid. You know he's a true true sophomore, and I'm actually really curious to see how Brewer grows opposite uh, Ellinger because. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to talk anymore about how Charlie Brewer didn't get offered by Texas. I don't care. Nobody cares. He's a quarterback at Baylor, and he's doing a great job. But, you know, Charlie Brewer coming from Lake Travis, Sam Ellinger coming from Austin Westlake, you know, those are two schools that have put out a lot of good quarterbacks. You know, Ellinger, 
before the Sugar Bowl, wore Drew Brees' Austin Westlake jersey into the stadium, actually, which was a pretty cool moment. And then Charlie Brewer, you know, you talk about Baker Mayfield's taking over the NFL right now, going to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. You know, and, and actually Sam Kahn, who was just on earlier, wrote a great piece about Lake Travis and, and their development of quarterbacks and how they have started identifying guys as young as, like, second grade to go up through their quarterback system. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think that there's a lot of reason to think that Brewer can be next in line in sort of that Lake Travis tradition. You have so many good players that have come from Lake Travis, and uh, it's going to be fun to see this sort of rivalry of Austin with this Lake Travis-Westlake rivalry keep playing out as Baylor plays Texas. But Baylor's heading in a good direction, too. You know, I mean, to finish 7-6 and six after 1-11 last year, I know that there's context with both of those numbers, but... One and six to seven and six, or one eleven to seven and six. I don't think you can make it unimpressive in any way. And actually, you know, we talk about schedules too with Baylor. Baylor's twenty nineteen schedule is very, very light. Uh, this is the last year that Baylor's not going to have to play a Power Five team in non conference, just because they already had the contracts done beforehand. And if you already had a contract done beforehand, you didn't have to cancel a contract if uh, if you didn't have a Power Five game. But they have SFA, who's rebuilding. You have UTSA, who we'll see. At Rice, rebuilding. Then you have Iowa State at home. That's a tough game. At K-State, I think they're going to really struggle next year. Texas Tech at home for the first time in a couple of years. Uh, I think that's very winnable. At Oklahoma State, we'll see whether Oklahoma State takes that step forward next year. West Virginia at home, I think that's a rebuilding team. At TCU, I'm very curious to see what TCU looks like too, and we'll talk about them in a second. Oklahoma, Texas, okay, whatever. At Kansas. So, like, I don't know. I mean, Oklahoma Texas are very losable games. At Oklahoma State is a very losable game. But you also get Oklahoma and Texas both at home. Uh, you get Iowa State at home, which is another game that I think is potentially losable, but luckily you get them at home. It's a very favorable schedule. I mean, 8-4 and four should be kind of expectations next year with the schedule because, you know, let's say that you lose both Oklahoma and Texas. Let's say you lose on the road at Oklahoma State. And let's just say you lose to Iowa State. I mean, are there more losses that you should expect I don't think you should expect all of those honestly and I mean maybe I I think that it's probably fair to expect a slip up along the way but like I also think it's fair to expect that one of Oklahoma Texas uh Oklahoma State Iowa State I think it's fair to expect Baylor to win one of those I don't know things are shaping up next year to be a potentially a pretty special season for for uh Matt Rule in year three at Baylor um and We've already heard him be rumored for NFL head coaching jobs this offseason. If, if they win eight or nine games next year, maybe that's the year that he decides to go. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, I, I don't really have a whole lot of insight into when he wants to go, where he wants to go, how he wants to go. But um, let's put it this way. If, if Matt Rule can take Baylor from where it was and then take them to one win and all the way up to nine wins, let's say, he's going to have his pick. He's going to have his pick of jobs that he takes next. Um, if he wants to go, and obviously if he wants to stay too, he'll have his pick of uh, of contract and salary, and and Baylor's got deep pockets too, so they can keep him around if they want to. So it'll be really interesting to see what Baylor does next year uh, and whether they can keep continuing to progress. And I think there's every reason to think that they should be able to. Uh, TCU, uh, look, we just have to talk about this game for a second. The Cheese It Bowl. This is the dumbest college football game that has ever happened ever. <laughs> I mean, granted, I'm not going to pretend to have quite enough uh, context of 
college football history to to maybe say that it's the singular dumbest. But I'll tell you what, it sure felt like the dumbest. <laughs> it really, really felt like the dumbest game that I've ever seen in my life. Grayson Mulestein, here's the stat line. 7 of 20, 27 yards, 4 interceptions. Good enough for a 1.7 QBR. On the other end, they actually had two quarterbacks that contributed. Chase Garbers, 12 of 19, 93 yards, 3 interceptions. Their other quarterback, Chase Forrest, 5 of 14, 71 yards, 2 interceptions. So, (laughs) in this game, you have 54 passes thrown. You have 9 combined interceptions and only 25 completions. So, like, what? Huh? Excuse me? And and keep in mind, I mean, these are both teams that are great defensively now. Uh, Justin Wilcox has completely changed the culture defensively at Cal. But nine interceptions? Are you you kidding me? Like, (laughs) I don't even know mathematically how that's possible, if we're being honest. Like, it, it just... It just blows my mind. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you what, the game finished 10-7 in overtime. TCU ends up winning. And if the game wasn't dumb enough, uh, shout out to Mark Cohen, the TCU Sports Information Director, who fell from the sideline onto the field because the game was not dumb enough already. So, oh man, TCU. I, I can't tell whether this is going to be one of the most fondly remembered bowl games or one of the most forgettable bowl games in TCU memory. I, I guess because they won the game, probably it's going to be memorable. And, oh, wow, thank goodness, you know, we sent Grayson Mulstein off right. You know, we, we finished with a winning record. <laughs> we won, uh, you know, all the Cheez-Its in overtime against Cal. But my goodness, oh, I don't know. I have no words. Like, I'm literally speechless, which is not good podcast. But I am speechless at how ridiculous this game was if if you haven't had a chance to watch it's probably up on youtube you you should check it out because it is a mess an absolute mess but tcu finishes uh seven and six finish with a winning record uh now i think that means that there is there are only two seasons since they joined the big 12 that they finished below 500 one was six and seven one was four and eight and both those years they came back with big years so we'll have to see whether tcu can take that next step forward next year it's going to come down in a large part, I think, the quarterback play. Justin Rogers coming in, Max Duggan coming in, Michael Collins coming back, maybe with a year of development. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what exactly TCU is. But one thing that they won't be is uh, is boring because things are definitely never boring in Fort Worth. Okay, I just want to finish off by giving a shout-out to Corey Hogue, our small college insider. He put together our first-ever small college all-Texas team made up of players from the FCS Division II and Division III levels. We just decided to kind of keep it to NCAA just because, again, comparing to NAIA or NJCAA, yeah, I think I got that right, junior college, uh, that's a little bit harder. But, um, you know, just want to point out a couple of standouts. Quarterback Leighton Rabb from Midwestern State threw for 3,100 yards, 29 touchdowns, only six interceptions for Midwestern State. Uh, they had a great chance to to make the playoff and and actually kind of got snubbed by Azusa Pacific, which Azusa Pacific got absolutely murdered in their first playoff game. But it's still a great season for him. Uh, he was sort of in the conversation for Harlan Hill Trophy for a little while. Markeith Miller at running back, over 1,800 yards rushing, nine games of 100 yards rushing or more. Mary Harden Baylor leads him to a national championship. Fantastic, fantastic year for him. Defensively on the defensive line, Marcus Jones from Angelo State 
This is a guy who you have to pay attention to. He was actually named Division II Defensive Player of the Year uh, for his performance. 84 tackles. Listen to this. 36.5 tackles for loss, 17.5 sacks. So, yeah, a pretty good year for Marcus Jones overall at Angelo State, I'd say. Um, you know, another guy that we really like, Brooks Satoff from Texas A&M Commerce at linebacker. He was nominated for the Cliff Harris Award as Best Small College Defensive Player after posting 103 total tackles, 15 tackles for lost two and a half sacks. It was a good year. Uh, it was a real, real good year for uh, for small college players in the state. Obviously, like we mentioned, Mary Harden Baylor wins a national championship. Um, you know, you get Tarleton State having the, the best season in program history, finishing number five in the final poll in the Division Two poll, uh, going twelve and one, I believe it was. So Tarleton State, watch out for them heading forward. Eric Morris completely revitalizing Incarnate Word leading them to their first uh, co-division title, or sorry, co-conference title, Southland title. Um, there's a lo- and, and now you have to talk about, obviously, A&M Commerce bringing in David Bailiff. You have to talk about SFA bringing in Colby Carthel. Sam Houston State doesn't stay lo- down for too long under Casey Keeler. There's a lot of excitement. If you don't pay attention to small college football, one, you should read Corey Hogue's stuff because, my goodness, it gets you into it. And you, you need to watch it. You know, I mean, we talk obviously a lot about the Texases, the Texas A&Ms, even the UNTs, the Houston's, but man, there's so many, there's so many great stories at the small college level. Again, check out our small college, all Texas team, texasfootball.com. And folks, that's going to do it for us. Uh, we really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you so much to our sponsor, North Texas Honda dealers, uh, North Texas Honda dealers. They're here to help. Like I mentioned, check out our all-Texas team on texasfootball.com. Find all of our bowl coverage up there. If you're a Texas high school football fan and you didn't pay attention to uh, Greg Tepper, Max Thompson, Ishmael Johnson, Matt Stepp, all of them uh, when they did their high school state championship coverage, I mean, it is off the chain. Absolutely off the chain. (laughs) In fact, a lot of it's still obviously going to be up on the website. So even if you're a couple weeks late, you need to check out this coverage because it was absolutely fantastic. Obviously, the the high school football season ends on a Hail Mary. North Shore wins the state championship over Duncanville. Absolute heartbreaker for Duncanville, of course, but absolutely fantastic moment for North Shore. It trended nationally on Twitter for multiple, multiple hours. Uh there's so much happening in this state. I mean, I actually I actually tweeted yesterday. I mean, not to <laughs> try to sit here and bump my own tweet, but it's an exciting time in the state of Texas. I'll tell you what. Obviously, you know, Texas going to the Sugar Bowl, Texas A&M having a top five recruiting class in a big season, Baylor having their resurgence, TCU bringing in some quarterbacks, North Texas, they bring back Mason Fine, Seth Luttrell. Houston bringing in Dana Holgerson. Texas Tech bringing in Matt Wells. Texas State's bringing in Jake Spavadol. UTEP, uh, you know, they showed some real strides. SMU too. Small colleges, you know, UMHB national champions. Uh, Tarleton State, their best season ever. Like, there's just so much. There's just so much to enjoy right now in college football. And that doesn't even count high school. That doesn't even count that the Cowboys and Texans are both in, in the playoffs. I don't know which one is your team, but no matter what you're in the playoffs congratulations i will admit i am a chicago bears fan and i still don't think we're good so we'll see whether that holds up but it's an exciting time to be a fan of football in the state of texas and we will be with you the entire way to make sure that you are fully apprised of everything that's going on in the state of texas like i mentioned 
You can find all our work at TexasFootball.com. Follow us on Twitter, DCTF. Like us on Facebook, Dave Campbell Sex Football. Follow us on Instagram, Dave Campbell. Uh, make sure and check out the winter recruiting edition that's just come out, our Texas Football Rising magazine. Uh, obviously, Texas A&M commit Kenyon Green on the cover. I think he's officially a signee now, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, find him on bookshelves everywhere or order it at TexasFootball.com. But until next week, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys real soon.